This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of um, discussing the topic of endometrial cancer and radiation therapy with Dr. Anuja Jingren, who is a professor in radiation oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Anuja. Thank you, Pedro. Um, Anuja, lots of things to cover in this particular topic, and uh, and certainly um, one where often uh, many discussions are held regarding indications for radiation therapy, the fields, the, the 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 approaches with combined chemotherapy. So hopefully we'll be able to tackle most of those topics today, um, and certainly looking forward to this uh, to this discussion. But let's start by just uh, w talking about what do you feel are, are like the greatest changes in in radiation therapy management in endometrial cancer over the past uh, five to ten years? So I think there's been huge surgical changes, and that has actually changed how we're treating in radiation therapy. But there's also been major radiation therapy changes. But I think the surgical changes key. Sentinel nodes has changed how we are treating our patients. Um, because of sentinel nodes, we're actually doing less pelvic radiation therapy and we're doing more vaginal cuff radiation therapy. And in radiation therapy, I, I think everybody knows, you know, intensity modular radiation therapy has shown to be better with toxicity. Um, and then we are actually doing more and more vaginal brachytherapy, and we're going to talk a little bit about that data a little bit later. But I think the biggest change has been surgery and adding sentinel nodes and getting the data from the sentinel nodes. So it's important you, you mentioned that because I think that in the United States, sentinel lymph node mapping in endometrial cancer has pretty much become the, the standard of care for, for patients. Um, but unfortunately, in many places around the world, they're still promoting full lymphadenectomies. And, and you know, and recently I, I was uh, at a conference where they were still talking about the more lymph nodes you remove, the better. Um, what would you say to our international community of gynecologic oncologists from the perspective of the radiation oncologist as, a, as to the value of sentinel lymph node mapping alone? So... I think sentinel node uh, mapping is actually um, better for radiation therapy because if you do do just sentinel nodes and you have to add radiation therapy later, you have less toxicity. I think there's a lot of data from the United States studies. Um, granted, they're not prospective, but you know you have large data from Mayo, from MD Anderson, even from Memorial Sloan Kettering. I do know the Europeans are still trying to do the um, trial looking at sentinel nodes versus lymph node dissection, um, but I I, I believe in our data, and I think our data is great, and it shows that Sentinel Node um, is enough. Okay. Um, let me talk to you. You mentioned the uh, the issue of giving more vaginal uh, cuff radiation. Um, tell us who should receive vaginal cuff today as opposed to more pelvic radiation. So this is where Sentinel Node biopsy is really important. This is where we actually, even at MD Anderson, have changed our policies. So like, let's say a deeply invasive grade two tumor with lymph vascular space invasion. In the past, even if with no dissection, unless it was like 20 nodes, we would have still given pelvic radiation therapy to this patient. But this is the patient. If you do sentinel nodes and this patient maps bilaterally and it's negative, this patient would get cuff. Because that sentinel node, we truly, truly believe. And we have data that shows if their sentinel node negative, if they map bilaterally, 
the risk is very low of them reoccurring in the pelvis. So that's where it's really changed. So these high-risk patients that we would have given pelvic radiation, especially the deeply invasive ones, that we would have given pelvic radiation therapy in the past, we don't anymore. So we reduce toxicity. And you mentioned the patient with a grade 2. Um, I think some, some would extend that question to the patient with grade 3, um, where... Uh, the bilateral central lymph nodes confirmed that there is no evidence of metastases. And in that patient, uh, I just wanted to, to hear your opinion if there is a deeply invasive grade 3, still uh, vaginal cuff radiation provided yeah, that the lymph nodes are negative. Yeah, so there is not enough data on that, and that's where it's very controversial. In fact, this patient, this deeply invasive grade 3 patient, was in PROTECT-3. And this patient was actually randomized to radiation versus radiation plus chemo followed by more chemo, right? So I think the deeply invasive grade 3s, we are still treating with pelvic radiation because we just don't have much data on it. But they probably do recur more distantly, but we actually don't know. So that's the one that we haven't changed. But let's say we have a um, stage 1A grade 3 lymph vascular space, um, space involvement, central nose negative, cup alone. So, you know, that we've changed. And the grade 2s we've changed. The grade 3s are still debatable. A lot of people are doing vaginal cuff. Here we're doing pelvic radiation therapy because the risk is still pretty high. So you mentioned the uh, the deeply invasive grade 3s. Um, what is the other type of patient profile that typically will uh, undergo treatment with extent, uh, with uh, uh, pelvic radiation in the setting of endometrial cancer in addition to the deeply invasive grade 3? So this is very controversial. So let's talk about this, right? So the data that we had prior to the two studies that just got presented, okay, and I, I we need to clarify this, right? So the data that we had prior to these two studies was that patients who were stage 3C, the treatment was chemoradiation followed by chemotherapy. So now you have two studies. You have 258 and you have PROTECT-3. 258 has only been published in abstract form. PROTECT-3 actually has been published. And what PROTECT-3 showed was that for stage 3C, chemoradiation followed by chemo, was the better option than radiation alone. For the less, the 1Bs and the 2B and the stage 2s, radiation was, it was similar to chemoradiation followed by chemos. But for 3Cs, the treatment was chemoradiation followed by chemo. So PROTECT-3 confirmed that that was a treatment. But 258 looked at chemoradiation followed by chemo versus chemotherapy alone. And what they found, Again, I think it's so important to remember that this is only abstract form, but they found that chemo improved survival, radiation helped with local control, but did not, but chemo radiation followed by chemo did not have better survival than chemotherapy alone. So now the big debate, at least in the United States, is that chemotherapy is the answer for three C's. Um, you know, you, you have to look at both studies. It's really hard to make any conclusion on abstracts only. And I think you have to look at the paper. So I, before you make any conclusion from 258, you have to look at the paper. Unfortunately, I think some conclusions have been made at MD Anderson. Our standard still for three Cs, if they're not serous, is chemoradiation followed by chemo. And that's based on PROTECT-3 and, and the previous data. 
And, uh, and, and certainly you, you anticipated my question with regards to what is done at Anderson. Um, and then just for the clarification uh, as to that regimen, the chemo radiation regimen is with cisplatinum. Correct. It's with cisplatinum, and then it's followed by four courses of carboplatinum and taxol. And this, you know, people say, well, it's so hard to give, you know, four courses of carboplatinum and taxol. We've actually never had that problem. And again, with intensity modulate radiation therapy, you can actually protect the bone marrow. And so you give less doses than bone marrow, and we're able to give patients four courses without much difficulty. We've looked at our we've looked at our patients. Majority of them get full four courses afterwards. Recently I had a discussion with a with a, a group in Europe where they talked about uh, the fact that these patients, these patients with stage three, that certainly there was a high risk of distant recurrences and therefore that they would prefer to give the chemotherapy first and then follow that by chemo radiation. I just wanted to hear your thoughts as to yeah, you know, so I actually, um, after looking at 258 and Protect 3, there's a big debate about how to do this. So I think what you have to do is look at the patient and say, where is the patient going to recur the most, right? So I think grade 3s and papillary serous, they're probably going to have a higher risk of distant metastases. And if they have extensive node involvement or extensive other high risk, I think they should probably get chemotherapy first. I would give the full six courses, and then I would come back and give um, radiation therapy. But grade 1s and 2s, I think the risk is both is actually higher locally. The risk of distant metastases is not that high. So those patients, I would do concurrent chemo radiation followed by chemo. So you have to look at that patient, and you have to see where is that highest risk. I think grade 3s and serous, it probably is distant metastases. But I would do the whole then six cycles or give the four cycles and then do chemo radiation. Personally, I would give the whole six cycles and then add radi radiation and therapy afterwards. Okay, and and um, another group that often comes up in discussion in, in tumor boards or disposition conferences is the the patient who doesn't have evidence of, of lymph node metastases, but the patient who may have metastases to the fallopian tubes or the or metastases to the ovary, and 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 certainly metastatic disease outside the uterus but confined to the pelvis. What what is your approach in those patients? Yeah, that's, okay. So that's this is a question that comes up at every multidisciplinary conference that we have. And the question is, how do you treat it? So the standard at MD Anderson now is that we treat them with cuff and chemotherapy. Um, and I think that's probably the right answer because the highest area still for them to recur is the vagina. So you're treating the vagina with low risk, and you're giving them chemotherapy for the distant metastases. So that's become our standard for these three A's. And I do think that's probably the right answer at this time. You know, you could debate on not even doing cuff, and that's up to you. But right now, our standard is to give them cuff and chemo. And um, in the setting of a patient, and you you have mentioned previously the the, the high grade uh, or high risk patients in the setting of a patient with a um, uterine papillary serous carcinoma. You know, how how do you determine if if this patient needs the just vaginal cuff brachytherapy followed by chemotherapy versus full pelvic radiation? <laughs> So, again, our standard at MD Anderson has become cuff and chemo. Even though we did do a phase two trial doing pelvic radiation therapy um, with chemo followed by chemo, and those patients actually, the 1Bs actually did very well. The patients with 3A all didn't do well. So our standard for anybody who does not have nodes is to treat them with cuff and chemo. Patients who have positive nodes get chemo radiation followed by chemotherapy. 
Now, if there's a serous patient, again, who has extensive nodes, as one of the cases that was just presented in multidisciplinary conference last week, then I would consider doing chemotherapy first and then following it radi radiation therapy afterwards. But the standard for anything less, um, so a 1A or 1B, they get cuff and chemo for papillary serous. So that brings up a question. So let's talk about stage two. I think stage two has changed. And I think that the data, and this is where sentinel nodes, again, come really important. So you did ask me where the sentinel nodes have changed everything. Mm -hmm. I think in stage two, sentinel nodes have changed everything. So, and the reason why I brought this up is because we're talking about papillary serous. The stage two papillary serous, we would do pel pelvic radiation with chemo followed by chemo. But all stage two, do all stage two need pelvic radiation? And no. So the old data said that all stage two should get pelvic radiation if they've not had a radical hysterectomy. That is not true anymore. And there's actually two published studies. One is a retrospective multi-institutional study, and the other one is a database study that shows patients who have grade one or grade two disease, less than 50% stromal invasion, and are node negative can be treated with cup alone. So grade one and two, less than 50% stromal invasion, node negative can be treated with cup alone. So not all stage two patients need to have pelvic radiation. And again, this is where that sentinel node has changed it. So there are a lot of stage two patients that we are no longer treating with pelvic radiation therapy. So then that, that brings up the question of, um, you know, often we see patients with stage two disease that is found coincidentally after having had a simple hysterectomy. Obviously, those patients did not have any lymph node evaluation. Um, as a radiation oncologist, do you advocate for a surgical procedure to evaluate the lymph nodes in that patient, or do you rely on imaging studies and then proceed with your approach of radiation therapy recommendations based on the imaging studies and the death of invasion of the stroma? So, you know what? This was a case that was just brought up in multidisciplinary last week. So this is the case. The patient had grade 2 disease and had um, about, I think, 3 or 4 millimeters into the cervix, incidental, right, endometrial cancer, and no nodes. So the question was, should we go back and treat the, get the nodes? And big debate, because if you don't do the nodes, that patient's going to get radi pelvic radiation. So actually, and it was a young patient, so we actually told him to take the nodes out. Because if the nodes are negative, we will treat that patient with vaginal brachytherapy. If the nodes are positive, then the patient needs pelvic radiation. So big change. Now, if it was deeply invasive cervical stromal, that patient is going to automatically get pelvic radiation. I would not do nodes. I would then base it on imaging. But if, if it's, um, if it's you know, less than 50%, grade one or two, do the nodes. New change. And, and, and then with that, then in a similar patient, often we do see patients that have had the simple hysterectomy, uh, the diagnosis is of a papillary serous, and they haven't had any uh, lymph node evaluation at all. Cup and uh, chemo. And, and that, that was that, my question. That was, that was the answer because, you know, your node dissection is really not going to change anything. You're going to give that patient, I mean, it may because you would have do pelvic, but this patient needs chemo. Don't delay what the patient needs. The patient needs chemo. Give them cup and chemo. Well, another um, point that uh, that has been discussed for, for many years, and I think that obviously is often a, a point of, of debate, 
is this uh, the issue of, of the sandwich approach and the sandwich regimens in the management of patients with uh, endometrial cancer. What, what are your thoughts on, on that approach and, and where do we stand today? So, you know, I actually had, de- I did a debate on this at the SGO about two years ago, and I actually debated the author who wrote all about the sandwich um, therapy, and she's actually moving back away from the sandwich therapy because the data is not correct in it. So the problem with sandwich therapy is you give three courses of chemotherapy, you stop the chemotherapy, you give radiation therapy, and then you give three more courses of chemotherapy. So what's happening? Well, what's happening is you stop the chemotherapy and the cells that are resistant or that are, that are sensitive to the chemotherapy can become resistant to the chemotherapy. So then when you add the chemotherapy back, they may not work. So it's just you stop the treatment that's actually working. So why would you do that? So it's better if you're going to do chemo, give all six courses of chemo and then do the radiation or do the radiation and then give the chemo afterwards. But don't stop effective therapy. That's the key. I mean, that's the rule of thumb. Don't affect, stop effective therapy because then you're going to have resistant cells. And then to, to that point, do you what, what is your sense or your recommendation with regards to how long do you delay radiation therapy after having your uh, index surgery? That's a good question. Okay, so the, the answer is, and this is what we do, and this has become such a big debate, and it's, again, we, I think the MD Anderson does it a little bit different than the rest of the country does. I think as long as you have some therapy going, you're okay. So a lot of the country does. So let's say CUP. Let's talk about CUP. A lot of country does is that they give six courses of chemotherapy, and then they give CUP radiation. That's probably okay um, because you're giving therapy, so you're hoping that the, you're killing those cells so the CUP radiation works after you've given six courses of chemotherapy. At Anderson, we do it a little bit different because we truly believe that you should start the radiation as soon as possible. So we actually, if we're doing CUP, we'll actually either do it right before the chemo or we'll do it between the first and second course of chemotherapy. So we're starting it within the four to eight weeks. I personally think that's the right way to do it because you want to get rid of the cells as soon as, you know, because what it, why are they recurring the CUP? They're recurring the CUP because we think you're pulling the uterus out, You've left cells in there, so you want to treat them as soon as possible. So at Anderson, we really either do it before you start chemo or we do it between the first and second course because you want to start it within four to eight weeks. But do we have data on that? No. So if somebody's gotten six courses of chemotherapy and then you give cuff, that's probably okay. I still think the better way to do it is start as soon as possible, and that's why we do it at Anderson. And we do it, and it's safe. We have no side effects. It actually works out well for the patients, too. So, Nuja, what are some of the ongoing trials um, that are most exciting in endometrial cancer today? The most I think the most important trial is PROTECT-4, and I really would love for everybody to be able to enroll in PROTECT-4. Unfortunately, it's so costly that we can't open it in the United States. We can't even open it at MD Anderson because we can't pay for it. But I, we cannot continue to lump all of our patients together because not all stage 1A grade ones are the same. Not, you know, so... And can, 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 before before yeah. going forward, can you just tell our audience that may not be familiar with PROTECT-4, yeah. like what is it? Yeah, so I was just getting to that. So what PROTECT-4 is doing is it is looking at the molecular. So they're looking at pole. They're looking at all these other things, and they're basing their treatment on the molecular profiling. And I think that's where we need to go because, like I said, not 
all seriousness are bad, right? So we really need to look at the molecular basis of the treatment of the cancer and treat it that way. I just, we cannot do stage and grade anymore. We can't do histology anymore. We've got to move forward. We have the data. We've got to move forward. Portec 4 is going to be our key answer. And what's the schema for Portec 4? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's actually a d um, big schema. So you have surgery, and then the patients are based on like pull. If you're pull positive, you get no treatments, and then the other risk factors, and you have to look at it. You know, they decide whether it's going to be vaginal or pelvic radiation therapy based on the molecular risk factors. So there's observation, there's vaginal cuff, and there's pelvic even, depending on what your molecular basis are. And do you have a sense of what is the total accrual that they're aiming Yeah, they're for? about 600 to 700. We, um, and we, like I said, they're already enrolling well. It's a great study. If we could do it, I would love for us to do it. And when do you anticipate completion? Uh, uh, they are hoping within the next three to four years. And they've, you know, they've enrolled well for Protect 1, 2, and 3. So I think they will do well. They just need the money. And it's just been a pleasure uh, discussing this really very important and broad topic. Um, are there any closing summaries you would like to make? So my closing summaries are that we really need to start treatment based on molecular and not on stage in histology. We need to stop lumping all patients together in these trials, and we just need to move forward based on the data that we have. Um, Dr. Ramirez, what do you think the future of endometrial cancer is? That's interesting. This is the first interviewee <laughs> that poses a, a question to the interviewer. Uh, no, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think that um, the the element of sentinel lymph node mapping has really completely revolutionized uh, our our approach to to the treatment of this disease. I think that it actually has opened a lot more information uh, with regards to the true status of disease of uh, of, uh, of the patient. Um, and I and I do agree with you that I think that um, moving forward, the molecular input um, from the Portec 4 will really uh, allow us to make much more sensible algorithms of how we, we manage these patients. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Anuja. Thank you.